you for listening to the Riverbend Church podcast. Riverbend Church exists to lead all people to know, love, and live new life in Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this message. Well, first and foremost, happy Mother's Day to you. So, hey, can we start off by giving it up for all the moms and the mother figures with us this morning? So again, whether you're, in, you're here in Gainesville or you're joining us with, uh, with us in Oakwood or you're online, it's always incredible just to be able to be able to gather together, to be able to worship together, just to be able to pray together, dive into God's Word together. There's nothing like just being together. Um, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Ben. I get to serve as the executive pastor here at Riverbend Church. Uh, so glad to be able to be with you. If you're new to Riverbend, uh, we'd love to get to know you if you call Riverbend home. Uh, so glad to be back with you. But this morning, we have a, a special opportunity just to be able to pause and to reflect just with a heart of gratitude uh, towards, the, towards the, the women and the moms and the mother figures that God has brought into our lives on a day like Mother's Day. So for me, whenever I think through like Mother's Day, whenever I think through uh, the key moms or mother figures that God has brought into my life, there's automatically three that immediately rise to the forefront of my mind in no particular order. Uh, First of all is my mom, my own mom. Um, have been incredibly, incredibly blessed and fortunate to be able to be born into the family that I was born into, a family um, that if you were to ask my mom, if you were to ask my dad, they probably would tell you that they think they made a lot of mistakes. They actually did a lot more right than, what, than anything that I can remember that was wrong. Um, one of the things that they did that was right was just placing a high premium and a high value on uh, myself, my brother, and my sister, our relationship with Jesus, our love for the church, our love just to make Jesus known. Um, So, you know, my love for Jesus started at a very foundational age, and my mom played a huge, huge role and a vital role in that, and not just the way that she prayed for us, but also in the life that she lived and the life she continues to live and the way that she continues to pray um, for us. Second is Julie, um, my wife. So I will get this out, of, out, out in the open, and this is going to sound like the most obvious thing ever if you've ever met Julie. Julie is better than me in all ways possible. Um, that, it's weird to clap, but it is correct to clap. Um, as a matter of fact, I was, I was talking to a, to a group of ladies that help us with the bulletins on Thursday mornings. I was talking to them a couple weeks ago, and, uh, and they, were, they were asking me about Julie, and, and, and one of the ladies said, Ben, how did you get her to marry you? And I said, well, I caught her on a, at a low point. Um, so, but she's the one that said yes. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, Julie has, uh, has taught me and continues to teach me more about uh, living a life of following Jesus and faith and perseverance and just, and just love. Um, incredibly, incredibly blessed and fortunate to be able to call her my wife. And our kids, Landon, Jackson, Sadie, are incredibly blessed to have her as their mom. The third uh, lady that always rises to the forefront of my mind is a woman by the name of Judy Clay. Um, Judy Clay, let me take you back to like the sixth grade version of me. Um, what I'm about to tell you, not exaggerating at all. If I'm lying, I'm dying. Sixth grade, we had six leaders that started with our group of sixth graders and they all quit. 
um, because we were, without a doubt, looking back in hindsight, a room full of little sixth grade jerks. Um, we, had, uh, we had six leaders, greatly intentioned, men and women, greatly intentioned, um, but they just couldn't take it. They could not take it anymore. There was a woman uh, probably halfway through that year, a woman by the name of Judy Clay, short, very unassuming uh, lady, that she stepped in and she looked at a group of middle school delinquents um, that just showed up to church every week and said, I'm not going to quit on you. Um, I love y'all. You make it really hard for me to love you, but I'm going to choose to love you anyway. Um, I love y'all. I see that God has plans for you, um, even if your teachers and your, your principals don't. Um, but uh, I, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to pour into you. I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to encourage you. Out of that group of sixth graders, there are numerous pastors now. There are several missionaries now. There are countless uh, godly men and husbands and dads, countless um, godly uh, women and wives and moms in no small part to the, to, the, to the everyday faithfulness of a woman by the name of Judy Clay. And I would say, and I know that I, I'm still connected with several of my friends that are in ministry, um, many of us have the same story, that a lot of who we became, anything that we became ministerially, a lot of it was in large part to Judy Clay. Um, her, her modeling faithfulness, her not giving up on us, her, her encouragement over us. And I think that they're, like, if we were to ask, you know, Gainesville, Oakwood, or online, uh, if we were to ask, like, hey, tell me about your mom. Tell me about your relationship with God, and, and, and where did it start? You, you could probably, we would have countless people that would stand up and go, hey, listen, let me tell you about the prayers of my mom. Or, like, the faithfulness of your, uh, of your wife and how, how God use, uh, uses your wife and, and uses her in, in the way in which she mothers your, your, your children and, and shows you Jesus in those ways. Or maybe it's like a mother figure like Judy. We would have countless stories like that. But here's what I do know. I know that every mom or mother figure that God has brought into our life and uses us to draw us closer to Jesus uh, they, they show great love for us and they show great love towards us. And here's what I would say, that great love is something that, I mean, I don't think that I'm, it's not earth-shattering news, but great love is something that like is sorely, sorely missing uh, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, uh, maybe in our, in our homes, in our world to where we have so many people like dividing and subdividing into different camps to where they're just bickering and to where they're just so divided and there's no unity and there's no love. And because of that, we're misrepresenting the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus himself said, listen, people will know you by your love for one another. So this whole issue of great love is so important and it's so needed in our world today, and here's what I would tell you, is great love never happens in a vacuum. It's not something to where we sit there and go, okay, I heard a message this morning about great love, therefore I am a person of great love. Great love never happens in a vacuum. As a matter of fact, great love always happens in a context and happens in a backstory. And even though we have different contexts and different backstories, we may be in the same room, we may be on the same campus, Oakwood, we may be watching the same uh, live stream online, 
Even though we may be in the same place, we come from different places and we come from different backstories and different backdrops. But here's what I would tell you is there's three foundational commonalities of a life that exemplifies great love. And here's what I want to do with you this morning is I want to show you a woman in the Bible that I don't think is talked about enough, a woman by the name of Hannah. And her story is first revealed to us in the book of 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible with you, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, you can look in the hard copy, or if you have a digital copy, I would invite you to turn over to 1 Samuel. We're going to be uh, looking at 1 Samuel chapter 1 at the very beginning. But let me give you a little bit of context of 1 Samuel. The events historically, if you were to put these events on a historic timeline, and again, there's not two separate timelines. There's not the timeline of history class and the timeline of the Bible. It's one long timeline. So whatever, whatever happened in 1105 B.C. in Egypt was happening at 1105 B.C. in the context of 1 Samuel. Or whatever happened in 1105 in what we now know as China happened in 1105 B.C. of what we now know as the book of 1 Samuel. So these events took place about 1,100 years before Jesus himself was born. And here's what I would tell you is that comes off of the heels of God leading the nation of Israel out of captivity from Egypt into the promised land, into modern-day Israel. And the nation of Israel, they were governed by the law of God. It was given as the law of Moses. And we can read about it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And we can read about how God brought them into the promised land in the book of Joshua. And they were faithful for a time. But then we come up on the book of Judges, which historically, 1 Samuel follows the book of Judges. In your Bible, 1 Samuel follows the book of Ruth, but historically it follows the time period of Judges. Now in Judges, God appointed men and women basically to be his judges over the people, to discern what was right and what was wrong and the direction which he was leading the people to go. Those were known as Judges. People like Gideon, people like Deborah, people like Samson. Those are, the, those are some of the Judges along with many, many others. But the context of Judges is this, is this is on the back end of the book of Judges or right after the book of Judges historically, which means there are several key things that are going on, but primarily the nation of Israel is in some major trouble here. And here's why. Because they had no godly leadership. They had no godly leadership. As a matter of fact, the nation of Israel, they completely ignored the law of Moses. They completely got away from what got them there to begin with. Number two, the priesthood was completely defiled. And what we'll, uh, what we'll see in just a moment is there are three primary priests in the book of 1 Samuel. There's Eli at the beginning. There's Eli and there's his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli basically is a bum. And Hophni and Phinehas, instead of being sacred priests, they're scoundrels, and they rip off the people of Israel. So they're ignoring the law of Moses. They're ignoring what got them there in the, to begin with. The priesthood is defiled. And then if you look at the very end of the book of Judges, this is actually the last verse in the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. You can read that and reread that and interpret that as no one did what was right in the eyes of God. So the nation of Israel is in some serious trouble here. And as so often was his pattern, God began to solve this trouble by sending a baby into the equation. 
You see, 1,100 years after the events that we're going to walk through, God sends the baby Jesus into the world in kind of a same like spiritual context. But here in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1, he's about to send a baby into the equation that's about to change everything about the fortunes of Israel. But this baby is going to go on to anoint kings. This baby is going to go on to be the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. And this baby is going to need to be mothered by a woman like Hannah. So let me kind of introduce you a little bit to Hannah. Hannah is, is married to a guy by the name of Elkanah. Now, as we're going to see, Elkanah had two wives. So her life was anything other than smooth sailing. If you have a Bible with you, let's look in verse 3. Starting in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 1, it says, Each year Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priest of the Lord there at the time were, or the priest of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. On the days Elkanah presented sacrifice, his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Penana and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So Penana would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Penana would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? Now, we're going to come back to the stupidity of Elkanah saying something so dumb to where all the ladies in the house are like, yeah, I can see that. Um, but here's what we see. The first foundational commonality of living a life of great love is great love comes out of great pain. Great love comes out of great pain. Here's what I mean by that in the context of 1 Samuel is Hannah's life was anything other than smooth sailing. Her marriage was unconventional to say the least. She was married to a man by the name of Elkanah who was also married to a woman by the name of Panana. So you have Elkanah sharing Panana and Hannah and it would be a gross understatement to say that Hannah and Panana didn't get along. You could also figure just by putting yourself in the, in, in the context and the setting of this narrative, there were probably days and expectations that Hannah would actually have to babysit Panana's kids so that her husband and Panana would go out on dates. It was not a conventional marriage. It was not a good marriage at all. Second of all is Hannah had this deep void in her life because she wanted nothing more than to be a mom. She wanted nothing more than to have kids. And Panana would brutally just continue to pour salt into that wound. And then you've got a husband that comes to her and says, why are you crying? I don't get it. Aren't I worth more than 10 kids? And Hannah's probably sitting there wiping tears away from her face going, is that a rhetorical question or do you want to fight? But even in the midst of that, can you imagine just the emotional isolation that Hannah's feeling from her husband at that point? When he goes, listen, Hannah, I, I know that you should be sad, but I, I just don't get it. Like, you, you just need to, like, suck it up, buttercup, let's, let's move on. 
There was great pain there. Yet it was Hannah's pain that actually drove her closer to God and not further away from God. Here's why. Hannah came to a point to where she realized that it was only God that could lead to the solution of her life. It was only God that could lead to healing of her heart. It was only God that she could truly depend on. So it led her closer, it drove her closer to God. Hannah came to a point to where she realized, listen, I can get bitter at God about my circumstances, but it's not going to make anything better if I become bitter at God because God's the only one that can deliver. God's the only one that can save me. God's the only one that gets me and that hears me and that can transform and can actually do anything about this situation that I'm in. It actually drove her closer to God. Hannah's pain was converted. Hannah's great pain was converted into great desperation for God. And Hannah's great desperation for God actually was used to become great love and great faith towards God. So she took her pain and she brought that to God and she goes, hey God, listen, you're the only one that can do anything about any of this. I'm desperate for you and because I'm desperate for you, I need to place my faith in you. I need to to place this entire situation in your hands. You see, some of the most extraordinary men and women that I've ever met in my entire life, that have joy and that have love and that have this peace. One of the things that I've figured out is some of those most extraordinary men and women, they have some of the deepest hurts. They have some of the deepest heartbreaks. They're people of great loss, yet there's great joy behind their tears and there's great faith in God behind their questions about God. I'm at the point to where I've come to realize that a person of great love and great joy and great peace probably has a very tragic backstory and has a lot of great loss and a lot of great heartbreak behind them. Those are the people that I want to spend time with to where I don't want to spend time with a person that they've never encountered anything wrong in their life or anything bad in their life or, you know, the things that have gone bad in their life, they're so small in comparison I want to talk to the people. I want to spend time with the people that they've experienced great loss and great heartbreak and great pain. And yet they've turned in great faith and great love towards God. And God has returned their faith and he's turned that into great joy and he's turned that into great love. And it becomes contagious. But that's not where it stops. Is this whole great love coming out of great pain I want you to see what Hannah did with her great pain. Look with me down in verse 9. It says, Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you look upon me, look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for, your, for his entire lifetime. And as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. And as she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her, seeing her lips moving, but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. 
Oh, no, sir, she replied, I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I'm very discouraged, and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think that I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. And this is where we see the second foundational truth of living a life of great love. Great love comes out of great prayer. Not only does great love come out of great pain, I think that we all have stories of great pain, but what we do with that great pain makes all the difference in the world. Great love comes out of great pain, but great love also comes out of great prayer. Now, if you notice Hannah's prayer here in 1 Samuel 1, it wasn't this fancy prayer. It wasn't this eloquent eloquent prayer. It wasn't this overly academic prayer. Hannah's prayer was actually a very simplistic prayer, but Hannah's prayer was a very sincere prayer. The strength of Hannah's prayer and the strength of our prayer is not found in the words that we use. It's found in the faith in whom we address the prayer to. So Hannah actually was talking to God as if she knew that God was listening. Isn't it interesting how many times that we pray to God as if God is distant or we sing to God as if like God is distant when in fact God wants to remind us he is here. He's closer than we can imagine. You see, I think that there are many times that we overcomplicate prayer. We think that we have to have our act together. We think that we have to have everything cleaned up in order to come before God or we think that we have to assume a certain posture or use certain words When in fact, the very essence of prayer, you know what it is, is communication with God. It's simply talking to God and listening to God. That's it. So I didn't write this in your notes, but you can jot it down if you're taking notes with us. In order to become a great person of prayer, I think there's really only three things that that are required of us. Number one is frequency. It's frequency. In order to become a person of great prayer, we have to be a frequent prayer. Spending time talking with God, listening to God. And listen, in order to pray, you don't have to close your eyes. As a matter of fact, if you're, if you're driving and praying, don't close your eyes. It's simply talking with God. It's having this conversation with God. And you may say, well, Ben, if I constantly talk to God, won't the people around me think I'm crazy? Well, Eli the priest thought Hannah was crazy. Maybe. But it's this constant talking to God. And listen, there's nothing too big for God and there's nothing too small for God. Talk to him about everything. Listen to God. Listen for God to speak. So frequency, the second thing to become a a great person of prayer, transparency. Frequency and transparency. uh, Transparency is simply this. It's just being honest with God. Just being honest with God. Listen, God already knows what's in your heart. God already knows what's in your mind. God already knows what you want to say and what, you, what you're already feeling, but you're just scared to say it because you're scared that he can't take it. Just be honest with God. Frequency, transparency, and then the third is faith. Let me kind of, let me kind of explain like why, why the faith component is so huge. It's faith in knowing that God knows more about what's going on in our lives than we do And that he's always in control. I don't know about you, but sometimes that's a really hard thing for me to wrap my mind around. Like I can wrap my mind around God knows more about what's going on around me than I do. I certainly hope so. I can wrap my mind around that. 
Sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my mind around God's always in control because I see all these things that seemingly are out of control. But faith is knowing that God knows more about everything that's going on around me than I do, and yet God is still in control. And not only that, but God is always behind the scenes working all things for the good. So it's frequency, it's transparency, it's, it's, it's faith. Those are the three things that require or, or they're going to build someone of great prayer. And one of the things that we're going to see together is great prayer leads to great love, and great love actually leads to great prayer. But here's what I would tell you. Is being a person of prayer always will require you being a person of action. Hannah's prayer was not, um, I don't think at all, it, it, it was this one-time prayer. I think it was recorded for us in 1 Samuel 1 once, but it wasn't a one-time prayer. I think that this was a continual plea to God. God, if you will give me a son, if you will give me a son, if you will give me a son. And the if in Hannah's prayer was reflecting the sincerity of her heart. It wasn't questioning the character or the power of God. It was reflecting the sincerity of her heart, not questioning the power or the character of God. But she became a person of great prayer, and because she became a person of great prayer, she was developed into a person that exuded great love. But prayer will always lead to action. Here's what I mean. Let's pick it up in 1 Samuel, starting in verse 21. This is the action that her prayer led to. When the child was weaned, God gave her a child, We'll talk about him in just a second. His name's Samuel. When the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh. They brought along a three-year-old bull for the sacrifice and a basket of flour and some wine. After sacrificing the bull, they brought the uh, boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I'm the very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. Now I'm giving him to the Lord and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshiped the Lord there. And this leads us to that third foundational commonality of living a life of great love. Great love comes out of great perspective. So great love comes out of great pain. Great love comes out of great prayer. Great love comes out of great perspective. Now, we read to where God blesses Hannah, gives, him a bo- gives her a boy, She names this boy Samuel. So again, this isn't in your notes, but Samuel is the combination of three Hebrew words. The first one is Sha'el. Sha'el literally means to ask in English. The second is Shama. Shama is translated literally into English as heard. And then the last is El, the Hebrew word El. El is a name given to God throughout the Old Testament. So you put them together, and it's Samuel. So Samuel literally means asked of God and heard by God. Samuel is both the request and the answer to God and from God. And because of this, because Hannah understood that Samuel was God's answer to her prayers, 
Hannah as a mom realized she didn't own Samuel. She did not own her son. Her son was hers to steward. Can you imagine putting yourself in the shoes of Hannah, how easy it would be for Hannah to live very closed-handed? God, this is my son. This is my only son. Or can you imagine how easy it would be for Hannah to be overly protective of Samuel? Or how about this? We're good at this, or I'm really good at this. Can you imagine how easy it would be for, for Hannah to play semantics with God? God, I told you if you gave me a son, I would give him back to you. And as a son, I'm not going to cut his hair. God, I'm not going to cut his hair. But what I really meant by giving him back to you is I'm going to bring him to the tabernacle to sacrifice every year with his dad and with me. And we'll we'll bring him there as a family and we're going to come back as a family. And I'm going to raise him in a home that loves you and is devoted to you. God, that's really what I meant. It could have been so easy for Hannah to try to play semantics with God. But she didn't. Why? Because Hannah allowed her pain and her prayers, she allowed God to use her pain and her prayers to change her perspective. And her perspective was this. She is not an owner of anything. She's a steward of all things. That her true identity was not in her being a mom. Her true identity was her being a daughter of God. Did you know that if you allow God to take your pain and to take your prayers, he still has a special and a unique way that only he can do. He can take your pain and he can take your prayers and he can use those things to shift your perspective. And one of the things that you're going to find out when God begins to shift your perspective is you start to realize that everything that we have been blessed with, guess where it comes from? It comes from God. And that we're not an owner of it, we're stewards of it. Whether it's our children, whether it's our jobs, whether it's our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our finances, we're not owners of it, we're stewards of it. We're to use all of it to point people to Jesus, to give them back over to God. And the second thing that he'll use our pain and our prayers to shift our perspective on is he's going to shift our perspective on the fact that our core identity, our true identity, is not at all wrapped up in the things that he's blessed us with. It's wrapped up in being sons and daughters of him. Remember how I told you when we started off how the nation of Israel was in a really bad way? They were in a really, really bad spiritual way. Because, why? Because they lacked godly leadership. So, The fate of a nation, the nation of Israel, in large part depended on the life of Samuel and how God would use Samuel. The life and the ministry of Samuel in large part depended upon the character of Samuel's home, namely his mom, Hannah. That's an enormous responsibility. And I don't think that that responsibility has changed. And here's what I mean. You may say, well, Ben, are you saying that the life and the spiritual welfare of the United States of America is depending on my kid? Not necessarily, but here's what I would say. Is we're surrounded by people that are in some serious trouble. And this is not a statement of judgment at all. It's just a statement of fact. They're in serious trouble because they lack godly direction. Maybe godly influence. 
Maybe they haven't met Jesus. Maybe they're not following Jesus. And maybe our schools, maybe our neighborhoods, maybe our workplaces, them getting right and them functioning right, them being pointed to Jesus, maybe that's going to be dependent and determined on the kid or the kids that, that are in your home right now. And the spiritual welfare of those kids are, are dependent upon the character of your home. And in no small insignificant way, so much of that responsibility is on the moms. So much is on the dads, but so much is on the moms. And it's an, an enormous responsibility. But through God, there's a responsibility out of great love. He can use seemingly small people to do great and mighty things for him and through him, but not on our own strength. I want to end a little bit different, actually a lot different this morning than what we regularly do. And at this time, if you're with us in Oakwood, love y'all, celebrating with y'all, but I want to turn it over to Pastor Greg because he's going to walk y'all through the ending down on the Oakwood campus. But for us, I want to ask you that you do something that may seem a little uh, unconventional, it may seem a little uncomfortable. But I want to pray over moms and mother figures. So here's what I want to ask that you do. If you're a guy in the house, can you just stand up and can you go find a mom, a mother figure, maybe place your hand on them. If one's not sitting, uh, if a mom or a mother figure or a lady is not sitting near you, get up, go find one, go join with a group. But I just want to pray over the ladies in the house with us this morning. Can you do that? here's what I want to ask that you do. As we go into an attitude of prayer, just silently wherever you're at, you may know the person's name, you may not. Just thank God for that lady. God, you created her. You know her. God, you love her. You continue to use her and have great plans for her. Pray that God would watch over her. Pray that God would bless her. Pray that God would flourish her in her influence of the people that he's already surrounded her with. God, I want to thank you for all the moms, for all the mother figures, for all the ladies that you have brought into, the, into our lives.
God, at the very beginning, you said it is not good for man to be alone. And God, we experience that need and we experience that truth daily. And God, on a day like today, God, we're reminded that the ladies that you've placed in our lives, God, are a blessing from you. God, I pray that you would watch over them. I pray that you would embolden them. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would protect them. God, I pray that you would flourish them. God, I pray that you would grow their spheres of influence for your kingdom. God, I pray that they would find their true identity in you as being a daughter of the King. God, I pray that you would envelop them in your love, in your peace, in your calm, in your comfort, in your holiness. God, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverbend Church Podcast. To learn more about who we are as a church and how to connect, you can head over to our website, riverbendchurch.life.